Bible reading today is from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you this morning. My name is Prash. I'm the uh, senior minister here. Very warm welcome if you're new or visiting with us this morning over Christmas. Let me pray for us as we reflect on that portion of scripture. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning, making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ and drawing us to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favourite films is um, a lesser-known Hugh Jackman film called The Prestige, where um, Hugh Jackman is a magician uh, and is constantly engaged in uh, a a competition with another magician. It has a great ending. I won't wreck the ending for you today. Um, But I like it because at the heart of the story is magic. Magic. We have, a bit of, we have a bit of a thing about magic in our culture. If you ever watch uh, X Factor or um, Australia's Got Talent, one of those entertainment shows, you know, there's always the usual boy band, you know, mixed group kind of thing. But every, every season there's a magician who stands out and makes it to the end. If you're a magician in one of those shows, you almost always make it, assuming you can do your act, you almost always make it to the final because we're all captured by a magician. We're all captured by magic. Um, when uh, when the, there's T20 uh, competitions throughout the world, and there was one in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, I mean, it's a bit of a... No offence if you're from Bangladesh, of course, but, I mean, a T20 competition in Bangladesh is not much, but one game made the back page of every newspaper because one competitor, after he took a wicket, decided he was going to celebrate his wicket by doing a magic trick on the cricket field. Magic trick. No one cared about the game, of course, but everyone showed the clip of this guy who just pulled something out of his, out of his I don't know, where, in the middle of the cricket field. We're captured by magic. 
And it's interesting because it's not just something you are captured by when you're a child. It's actually something that adults are captured by too. Here's a quote by a guy called Gustav Holt, who um, is a, uh, he's actually a professor of psychology, a medical uh, doctor uh, in the University of London. And he, was, he wrote a paper all about magic, actually. And he recalls this moment where he saw a magician practicing in the square. He says, I still don't know how he did it. It was so beautiful. It almost connects you to your childhood when the world seems very magical. As children, we find it easy to believe in magic. But as adults, you know, we think we've grown out until we, you know, we see a magician do his or her work and we think, wow, what was that about? I think it's because deep down we love the idea that the there is some kind of power behind everything, isn't it? That the world is not just flat, it's not just the usual things that we're used to. You know, it's interesting, actually, the question is whether that connects with reality or is that just part of us holding on to our childhood in the midst of the stresses of adult life. The Bible actually talks about the presence of a power, a great power in the world. Um, when, when you go through the Old Testament, you see this happening all the time. There's a, there's a moment where Moses, Old Testament, he's just freed Israel from, from slavery and they go to get the law and he goes up the mountain. And I mean, all of that is extraordinary in and of itself. But then Moses says to God, show me your power, show me your glory. The Hebrew word is Shekinah, the weightiness. Show me the, show me the thing that's behind everything. Moses has this great desire to encounter the great power of the world. Uh, there's, there's a moment where Isaiah the prophet, who, uh, in fact, Paul referred to in his prayers, Isaiah the prophet has a vision in Isaiah 6 of being in the temple of, of the Lord and encountering God himself. And, and he, he's overwhelmed by this encounter with God's power. Israel itself had the temple, both the tabernacle, which was the moving version, and the temple, which was the, was the established version, right in the middle of their community. And that was where the power of God descended in the form of a cloud or in the form of fire. They were a community that was gripped, gripped by this sense of power. The Bible, has, the Bible says our inclination, our sense that there is a great power is not that far off. The reality, actually, there is a great power in the world. There is something that's yearning to break out. Last year when we had the bushfires, there was a video that went viral of... Um, some firefighters standing on a road, everything looked peaceful, and then 10 seconds later, this huge fireball bursts through. And people share it because, of course, we're captured by this idea of great power in life and in nature. Is it, we, we, we sense that amidst the, the kind of mediocrity of life, there is these moments where something breaks out. It's what captures our attention about natural disasters, as horrific as they are. They also remind us we sense of something powerful. And yet, I guess the reality is, for most of us, we never live our life that way, do we? We don't live our life with a sense of a great power in the world. We're just kind of consumed with doing the daily realities. And it's not actually just, you know, people out there, so to speak. It's us as well, as God's church. We spend most of our time living life as its fairly mundane existence. Here's what one writer said who I read as I was preparing this sermon he said, Christians and non-Christians alike are disenchanted because we're all immersed in a world that presents a material understanding of reality as the plausible and grown-up way of thinking. 
And as he says, we're all disenchanted because when people start to talk about power, when they start to talk about something unseen but supernatural, for want of a better word, we, we start to attribute to them that some kind of medieval thought. We think, oh, they're backward in their way of thinking. Oh, that's sweet. That's what I used to think when I was less sophisticated. He says that we are shamed away from thoughts that venture near spirituality and transcendence. That is so true. That's really, it really is true. If you talk to someone about your Christian faith as a believer, most of the time they'll smile and say, oh, isn't that lovely? You have a sense of conde- their conde- your condescending approach to your view of life. But it's also true for us, actually. That, you see, a lot of Christians, if we just think about our life, we might theoretically believe in the spiritual and the transcendent, but functionally we're people who operate on a material basis. Most of our life, in fact all of our life, really is shaped by the things that we touch, taste, feel and see, isn't it? That's how we make our decisions. We think about the food that will go on our table. And even as I say it, you think, but of course that's important. And yet we have a sense in our life, we have an inkling which we're often squashing away, we're pushing away, uh, and our experience is that there is actually a great power at work in the world. There is something transcendent and spiritual about our existence and the world as it is. Now, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't just say there's a power. It builds on this story as we go through. The Bible is a constant revelation. It's a big story. I was telling my, my scripture class, this was our focus for uh, fourth term this year, scripture at uh, Willoughby Public. The Bible is one big story, actually. And it's a, it's a constant revelation of a truth. And so what we saw in the Old Testament, which was that there is a power, that, there is a, that even God's people had an inkling of something greater than their immediate experience. Moses saw great power in the, the, the rescue of Egypt out of Exodus, out of, uh, sorry, Egypt, uh, rescue of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. But even that was not enough for him. He wanted more than that, right? The Old Testament people had inkling. But the Bible's story reveals that actually that's, it's not just that there's a power but the power has a very particular shape. And we see that in our story that we read this morning from Luke chapter 1. Oh, actually, before we get there. That inkling, that sense of the power, when we miss it, our life is necessarily flat. Okay? The reason why, when, when you see magic and you long for it, is because, in a sense, when our life is material, it is, on one level, empty. It's lacking something. It is necessarily a 2D version of how we're meant to live. I'm going to play for you a clip now. That's, that's what I realised I'd missed. This is a clip of a comedian being interviewed by Conan O'Brien. And he talks about the, 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 the malaise that we're in now because our life is just so flat and we miss this bigger picture. Here's what he says. Let's have a look. The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they got to, uh, you got to check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. 
Yes, I. Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're talking about. Knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it. You're in your car and you start going, "Oh no, here it comes that I am alone." Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second. Because It's a great video. Because uh, I love this couple of things. I love Conan O'Brien, who awkwardly laughs through it because he thought he was interviewing a comedian. This guy's actually revealing something deep about life. Uh, and I love, I love what he picks up, actually, that, you know, when we live our life in this imminent space where the only things that we're concerned with are the material, you know, the touch, taste, feel, the daily realities of life, we disconnect from the from the bigger story, we disconnect from the grand power, we disconnect from that other reality, we live a 2D, 2D version, and ultimately you, you do feel that sense of aloneness, that, that feeling that he described. Because there's something so significant in your life that's actually missing. And, and so when you end up in a year where there's a pandemic and you're forced to be at home for three months or six months or however long it is, and it's just you, and so many of those stimuli in your life which have just kind of kept things moving are taken out of it, what you have is a real sense of loss. Loss of purpose, loss of meaning, loss of direction, loss of shape. You see, and for most of the time, we just drug ourselves into believing that it's okay because we surround ourselves with all the material things. But that inkling still exists. Now, as I said to you, the Bible lays out this storyline. And when we get to Luke chapter 1 and the section that's been read, what we see is not just that there is a power, but the power is a particular shape. Let's have a look at the chapter. This is what happens to Mary. She's having an absolutely normal day. I mean, you put yourself in Mary's shoes. She's having an absolutely normal day, and then an angel appears to her. Now, angels appear in the Bible at very specific moments. They don't just appear to tell you what the weather's going to be like. They don't just tell you, things are going fine, just keep doing what you're doing. Angels appear to mark moments of great proclamation, right? Through the Old Testament and now in the New Testament as well. And the angel appears. So Mary realises, whoa, something is happening, something extraordinary is happening. And then see the three things that she's told. First of all, she's going to give birth to a child. That in itself is not unusual in her culture. Of course, it was the job of women in that time to raise children, and, but it's the nature of this child. He'll be the son of the Most High. That's extraordinary. She's, the world is slowly opening up to her. And he'll be on the throne of his father, David. Now, she's a peasant girl, and David is the great king of Israel, the great hope of this nation. And he, he is going to be from that lineage. He's going to be a royal pr prince of that sort. And then she goes on to say his kingdom will never end. I remember being in youth group last year talking about Isaiah 9, talking about the everlasting prince of peace. Nothing is everlasting in our life. Everything we have has an ending point. Whatever is new gets old. Whatever exists ultimately breaks down and dies. But this one is totally different. His kingdom will never end. 
And you sense that Mary's heart is both filling with awe and wonder and fear as the world is opening up to her, as this revelation upon revelation is coming. And of course, the question that comes to her is, how can this be so? She's a virgin. But if, if, if what's been told is not extraordinary enough, the angel then says, the Holy Spirit himself will dwell in you. She's heard of the Holy Spirit dwelling on, on men in the Old Testament, but here she is, a young peasant girl, and the Holy Spirit himself is going to come and dwell on her. And then finally, if that's not enough, this child will not just be any child, will not just be any prince, will not just be a king, but will be the son of God himself. There's this little, this little idea that germinates first in the appearance of the angel and then the threefold description of the child and then the mention of the virgin birth and finally in this child being declared the son of God opens Mary's eyes up to the reality that this power which she had an inkling about and had heard about happening and appearing in the Old Testament is now coming, is here and is in her life. And what's more, this power is not like the kind of power we think of when we watch Star Wars or something like that, which is impersonal. This is a power that's personal, that's coming to dwell in the form of a person, a great person, an extraordinary person. And so the Bible is saying, not just that your inkling is true, but that that power is accessible, that you can meet him and know him. Not just that you were right to think that he might exist, he does exist. Come and meet him. Come and meet him. Come and meet him. Now, how are we meant to respond to that? How are we meant to respond to this moment that Christmas is unpacking for us and revealing to us? Well, the, Mary, again, is such a great uh, model for us at this point in Scripture. Anyone who says the Bible is negative about women, you just need to start with the key figures in the story. And here's one of the key figures. It's this young girl. And here is God showing us how we have to respond through Mary first thing you'll notice is that she uses her mind. She uses her brain. Sometimes I think we, when we think about supernatural things, when we think about power, when we think about the, the, the mystical realities, we think that means we're meant to put our brain aside, put our rational thought aside. But it's so far from that, actually, what's been described. Actually, in Matthew's Gospel, where we hear the same story from a slightly different angle, we're told that Mary ponders these things in her heart. She reflects on them. But look at what's happening here. Luke's gospel, which started, if we'd started from the beginning of Luke, we'd actually have read in the first couple of verses, Luke saying, the whole point of this is, I'm going to tell an ordered account. I'm going to do the research. I'm going to think, I'm going to interview people. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to come down to the facts. That's where he starts. And having set that out, the very next thing he does is talk about this extraordinary moment, this, this spiritual inbreaking, this powerful inbreaking of the great power in the world. Now, if you start off with that mindset that I'm going to find the facts and this is where he goes, then clearly there was a rational reason for believing what had happened to Mary. But you see, even in the angel's words, what the angel says to Mary is, look at your cousin Elizabeth. Again, if we'd started this series from the beginning, we would have heard of Elizabeth's story already. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth is her cousin who's very elderly, well beyond child-rearing, child-bearing age, and yet now is with child. The angel says, I'm not just asking you to accept what I'm telling you, oh, that the great power of the world is coming and is going to dwell in you and then live amongst you. Look, look at Elizabeth. It actually can happen. 
This woman, who's in no way physically capable of bearing a child, is doing exactly that. Now, you see, we think about, we think about the Bible often with this mindset that, oh, isn't that a quaint story? I mean, now that, we, now that we're 21st century people, we can't really believe those things, like the virgin birth. We can't believe the idea that God would really dwell in a human being because, of course, we have science. We know how things really work. But before we go down that path of cultural and kind of chronological snobbery, so to speak, it's worth reflecting on a couple. First of all, Mary and her culture obviously knew how babies were made. Like, you know, they'd worked that aspect out. But, but importantly, they had a worldview which naturally opposed what was being described. She's a Jew, she's a Hebrew, she believes in one God, she believes that God is separate to his creation, that he speaks and creation comes into the being, and, and there's, there's always been a sense of God's holiness, meaning that he couldn't interact with people, there were all these barriers in worship to stop him from engaging with his people, and yet now she's been presented with this truth that God is not just interacting, but coming to be one of his creation. This goes completely against her worldview, her way of thinking. Now, if she doesn't have good reason to believe it, she's not going to accept it. You've got to use your brain. You've got to use your brain. The Christian faith is not a faith for people who believe in a mystical fairy in the sky. But, but what's really startling about Mary's response and the thing that we're called to do is the words that she says. See what she says? She says, I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. In other words, the key way you respond to the truth of Christmas, to the birth of the Lord Jesus, is obedience. You say to God, I am your servant. I am your servant. And you think about all the things that we do at Christmas time, Christians and non-Christians, all the things we do, how many of them could we rightfully say are characterized by the word obedience. But that's exactly how Mary responds in this moment. She's been told this extraordinary truth that God is coming to dwell in her and live with her and be raised by her. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. And you know, she's not just, that's not just words because for her to take on this costs her a lot. She's a young girl in a village. She's engaged to another man, Joseph, not married yet. So for her, it's not like in Sydney now, if you say, oh, I'm having a child out of wedlock, no one will bat an eyelid. But in her culture, this is extremely troubling, problematic moment. First of all, reputation just destroys her. Secondly, it puts her, her relationship with Joseph at great strain because she doesn't know how he's going to respond at this point. She says, I'm your Lord, servant." before she said anything to Joseph. She doesn't know how he's going to respond. I mean, we read on and we find that Joseph responds the right way, but she has no guarantee about that. And of course, the reality is by losing her relationship, by losing her reputation, she risks losing her security as well as a young woman in that culture. But Mary does not blink at this moment. She is willing to hand over her life in light of this truth that comes to her by the angel. I am your Lord's servant. You know, I just think this is so challenging for us, so challenging. Because at Christmas, what we're asked to do is not to take a pause from our discipleship, but to ramp it up in obedience to the Lord. The problem, I think, is actually at Christmas time we do the opposite. 
We say, oh, I'm taking a break. I've gone really hard for 48 weeks of the year and I'm taking four weeks out of my discipleship. I've got to focus on the family. I've got to get the Christmas turkey done. I've got, to, I've got people over for lunch. I've got to buy the presents. I've got to wrap them. I've got to assemble the kids' equipment in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve. I've just got to take a pause on obedience this Christmas. Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So challenging, isn't it? So challenging to say that the primary response at Christmas time is obedience, is obedience. Now, when you think about Christmas, I don't know what you think about. I think about Home Alone, particularly Home Alone 2. Love that film. New York, White Christmas, shop fronts, beautiful decorations, Macaulay Culkin looking cute. Not, he's 40. He's 40. That makes me feel old. But I love that film. It, it's all the things I think of at Christmas. All my, per, my perfect Christmas would be New York when there isn't a pandemic. New York at Christmas time. White Christmas. I can't, but you know what? It tells me something about how I envisage Christmas. I envisage Christmas, I envisage the glory of Christmas, I envisage the weightiness, the beauty, the splendour of Christmas in materialistic terms. The thing that captures me most is shop fronts and storefronts. And you know what? That is so sad, isn't it? Because the Bible is telling us that something far greater than that is. You know, our souls are looking for that glory. We're like Moses on the mountain saying, show me your glory. Deep down, that is what we're saying. Every time you see a magician, you think, ooh, I wonder what that's all about. We're thinking, I want to meet the one who's behind that. In the end, we just sell it off. We just think, oh, if we get the family around, we get the great photo, I don't burn the turkey, I don't undercook the turkey. It's been a great Christmas. But we're selling out because there's something much better in store for us. Something much better. You know, I think what's really interesting about Christmas in, 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 the, in the Christian worldview and what the Bible is actually telling us it's about is that it's not like any other kind of religion. It's not like any other kind of religion. Lots of people want the transcendent moment. They want the sense of spirituality, right? I mean, people will come to church on Christmas because they'll have a sense that the baubles and the decorations and the music and the, the candles, they all, they're, they're helping them get in touch with God. But that's not actually what the Bible's saying. You know, most of us think that the way that we encounter transcendence, the way that we encounter that power is we have to somehow work our way there. We have to meditate our way there. We have to clear our mind but the message of the Bible and the scriptures is this. You don't have to do anything because actually Christmas is about how God came to you. How God came to you. How he announced himself through an angel. How he dwelt in a woman. How he was born and lay in a manger. How he walked the streets of Palestine. How he died on a cross. And even as he rose, how he bore the scars of that cross in his physical body. Because God has come to us, you see. You don't have to work your way to him. That is extraordinary. The answer to your longing is not something you primarily need to do. 
but rather something that has been done for us, that has been done for us. And, and actually, as we reflect on that truth about Christmas, and we reflect on Mary's story and what we learnt here in this moment, as we, ref, as we think about her experiences, that Mary, do you see, Mary actually gets far better than anyone before her ever got. You think of Moses, you think, wow, what it would have been like to be Moses up on the mountain. But when he was up on the mountain, he needed to be put in a cleft in the rock to be protected from the glory of the Lord. You think what it would be like to be Isaiah and have a dream, such a vivid, rich dream. But it was just a dream for Isaiah. You think what would it be like to be an Israelite, to have the temple right there and see the smoke come down on it? It's just smoke in the end. But Mary gets God himself. Gets God himself. She gets God dwelling in her, living with her, and ultimately dying for her. And, you see, by faith, that is our experience too as God's people. That is our experience. That is why this season is so worthy of our celebration, so worthy of our attention, so worthy of our energy, because God has come to be with us, come to be with us. So I, I just want to encourage us as we embark, we've got two weeks or so, three weeks to go before Christmas, make it about the Lord Jesus and his gift to you. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son for us. Our hearts have been longing for this moment longing to know that you exist, longing to know that we can know you and encounter you. And we thank you that in Christmas, in the season of Christmas, in the remembrance of the birth of the Lord Jesus, all those longings are fulfilled. All those longings are met. Lord, guard us from substituting the Lord Jesus with things that are just so passing and transitory. Help us rather to respond in obedience, to ponder and to marvel over what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And Lord, transform us with the rich truth that we can have you. Not just a glimpse of you, not just a taste of you, but you dwelling in us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.